Michael Anton is at it again, and Paul Gottfried responds. I discuss both on episode 754 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to check me out on social media. Follow my Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. If you do subscribe to the YouTube page, make sure you click on that little super thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way. It's a great way to support the show. Also, if you want to support the show, go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. You can go to anchor.fm. Support the show there. You can become a subscriber at anchor.fm. All right, well, let's talk about the topic today. And I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it's Michael Anton and Paul Gottfried. Michael Anton is at it again. American greatness is really his canvas. He likes to go out there and write these very long pieces. In his mind, I think, defining what American conservatism is. And I actually had several people send me this particular piece, and then also Paul Gottfried after sent me his response. But uh, this all happened, of course, uh, right around the time everyone was taking a little break for the holidays, and myself included. So this gives me an opportunity to reflect on these things and also to present them for the show. Now, it would take me probably three podcasts to get through Anton's piece. One person that sent me the link said it was almost unreadable, and I agree. Uh, Anton, at least when he gets into these longer pieces, does not have the gift of clarity at times, and I think that's that's a problem. And, I, and, and Gottfried even points that out. It's a little confusing. And I think one thing that's interesting about Anton, and this is what someone said, you know, is he, or I, Gottfried even, is he trying to be the man that defines American conservatism now? Is he trying to be the William F. Buckley, the gatekeeper of what it means to be an American conservative? It's it's what Gottfried says, but I think some of that is true. Uh, and the and the Jaffaites, the West Coast Straussian Jaffaites, are certainly trying to position themselves in that role. You see it with their influence in the Trump administration. You see it in how they've responded to various. Uh, parts of the conservative movement, whatever that is, to try to knock it down. And of course, Anton and I have gone back and forth in Chronicles Magazine and also Anton and American Greatness. But uh, the fact is, I think Anton is a little bit confused about American conservatism. One of the things that he says is surprising to me, and as I go through the Gottfried piece, I'll mention it again, but he calls what is actually the old right the new right. And I find that fascinating, you see, because what Anton does, there's no self-awareness. What Anton doesn't realize is that he is actually the new right. The Jaffaites are the new right. The Jaffaites, and they, they've bristled, Anton's bristled when I called them neoconservatives, but that's really what they are. The Jaffaites really are a, a part of neoconservatism because what they are doing essentially is aligning themselves with this 19th century liberal mentality they're trying to conserve 19th century liberalism, which is essentially what the neoconservatives have tried to do as well. When you base your conservatism on Abraham Lincoln, you're not really basing it on conservatism. You're basing it on 19th century reform movements, which everyone at the time pointed out weren't conservative. In fact, the Republicans called themselves, or actually called their opponents, conservatives. They called their opponents conservatives. 
Uh, Winter Davis did this. If you take my Copperheads class at McLeanahan Academy, I'm sorry, my Radical Republicans class, excuse me, at McLeanahan Academy. Winter Davis does this during the war. He calls his opponents conservatives. And these are the Peace Democrats or the Copperheads, which I also have a class on at McLeanahan Academy. If you don't get McLeanahan Academy, you're missing out. So we've got this debate now over what it means to be an American conservative. And what are the intellectual origins of that. And most importantly, I think it comes down to, at least for Anton, this discussion of natural rights, natural law, and liberty. And so it's important to point out, and I talked about this yesterday, that rights and liberties are two different things. And in the 19th century, you had conservative philosophers who were very careful to point this out. You can have natural rights, you can have natural law, and then you can have liberties. And those liberties are important. And how we define liberty is important. This is what I was mentioning yesterday with the state mottos. And now you had this conception of liberty in Massachusetts that was different than the conception of liberty in Virginia. And those two conceptions of liberty are still competing in America today. Someone on the left might tell you that they really are fighting for liberty. Because in their mind, they're fighting for freedom from rather than freedom to. But as Albert Taylor Bledsoe pointed out in his book, Liberty and Slavery, and again, this is when you start mentioning Bledsoe, you get up people you know, getting all upset because Bledsoe was a Southerner who defended secession and also defended slavery at one point. Um, but he still makes a very valid point about liberty and rights. And he said the two things are not the same. You can have rights, but not liberties. Liberty is different. And when you look at the Virginia conception of liberty, they were very concerned about liberty and their own liberty from tyranny. It was a different kind of thing. And that is the core, in many ways, of American conservatism. What it really means. Resistance to tyranny. Now, I would think Anton would agree with this in some ways, but he would phrase it more in terms of rights. And he would talk about how Virginians would say things like rights. They had a Declaration of Rights. Uh, you, know, you look at uh, you know, Bill of Rights. These are things that the, the term rights would be used. But when you go back to the earliest conception of this, it wasn't rights, it was liberties or privileges. These are privileges that they needed to maintain. And the ancient constitutions, the uh, English liberties, these were things that were important for Virginians. I didn't mean they weren't important for people in Massachusetts, but there was a different kind of conception of that. Liberties meant you could go fishing and hunting wherever you wanted, and some people could and some people couldn't. Some people had more liberties than others. It didn't mean that it, they didn't have equal rights. But as Gottfried's going to point out in this piece, that term rights has been distorted to, a, to a, a point where it's indistinguishable from anything other than leftism now. And so what the Straussians are trying to do is supposedly return it back to something, but you can't. The, that's gone, right? The anchor has been broken. The chain is gone. It's now out in the middle of the ocean, and it's never coming back. And who gets to decide where you stop this definition of rights or laws? Who gets to decide? Now, liberties is a whole other thing, and there's an American conception of this. So let me get into Gottfried's piece this again is that American greatness, and Gottfried is able to write at American greatness as an old right partisan when most people are not able to do that. So most people on the old right have to write somewhere else, but Gottfried has a, 
good relationship with the people at American Greatness. And that's great because you can go out and publish pieces like this. Michael Anton's piece that appeared in American Greatness, which, like I said, would take me days to get through, was a response to a piece that appeared from a man named Christopher Z-Man. And he was attacking natural rights. And essentially, Anton said, look, I don't want to live in a, in a country or a place where we have this aristocracy. And he took a lot of shots at Z-Man. Um, I don't know Christopher Z-Man at all, but he took a lot of shots at people who uh, are trying to make distinctions about these things and that that's not a place for me. And who gets to decide who's the aristocracy? And traditions are, you know, there's always new traditions and new things. Well, some of this is true. Uh, but again, I think that, that Anton doesn't really understand American culture very well, particularly 17th century American culture. And as I said yesterday, politics is always downstream from culture. It, it, it always is. And you have to understand the distinctive nature of American culture and the regional differences that did produce two distinctly uh, unique versions of America. One Massachusetts, one Virginia. And what happened in 1865 is that Massachusetts vision wins. The radical Republicans get their way. And that's what the Straussians are trying to conserve. That. That different vision, which is not in line with what America was before that point. And New Englanders knew it, which is why you have people like Charles Sumner running around saying, we've got to make America New England, because he knew America wasn't New England. He knew America was something else. It was an older traditional order, and it had to be done away with. He had to make America New England. And so that's what the Straussians are really trying to conserve. And it's a bunch of reform gobbledygook. Because out of that hub of Massachusetts and out of this conception of liberty comes all of these reform movements. Now, Southerners, of course, if you just want to say, well, yeah, what about slavery? Southerners in Virginia, as has been pointed out in many scholarly works, particularly about 50 years ago, Southerners in Virginia were leading the charge in abolition. They were, the, they were the earliest emancipationists. They were the earliest abolitionists. They were the earliest colonizationists. They thought that slavery needed to be eradicated and it needed to go away. Um, they saw some inconsistencies in their position on tyranny and liberty with slavery. And they, mentioned, they talked about it openly. They talked about it. So it wasn't that the Southern tradition was antithetical to abolition at all. I think what happened is that they started seeing the aggressiveness of the North and they wanted they started resisting that. They naturally bristled at that. And as Jefferson said, they didn't know what to do about things, right? They they had they 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 inherited this institution and they didn't necessarily know what to do about it. How to get rid of it because then you have conceptions of citizenship and liberties and all these things are going to factor into that and no one in the United States was really really willing to deal with that in a way that they thought would have been acceptable. So, let me get into this piece. The title is Contra Michael Anton and America's Natural Right Underpinnings. He says, It is with some hesitancy that I enter the lists once again against Michael Anton. On polit political and social issues, I have no differences with him and can only applaud his writings on the fallen state of our constitutional republic. Now, one thing I will say there. 
This term constitutional republic needs to be buried. We don't have a constitutional republic. We have a federal republic. And I think we need to keep pointing that out. Federalism is the key to understanding America. There is no America without federalism. Because if we didn't get federalism, no one would have agreed to the Constitution. It is the key. It's not a constitutional republic. It's a federal republic. And so we need to bury this term constitutional republic. While admiring his forcefulness and expressing our shared views. Where we necessarily part company is in his defense of the natural right teachings of the late esteemed Harry Jaffa. Although his, to my knowledge, latest polemic against the deniers of natural right does not mention me specifically, I do nonetheless feel implicated in his, in this dust-up. Christopher Zeman, the pugnacious blogger whom Anton was addressing, was pillaring natural rights thinking apropos of something I had posted. And the new right which Anton scolds for its improper or confused thoughts was certainly imprinted by my views about rights. Again, new right, this quotation, new right. Now, years ago, back in the 80s, there was a book by the late Bob Whitaker, The New Right Papers, which Clyde Wilson and Tom Fleming, and I think even Sam Francis, if I remember correctly, wrote an essay in. And they were calling themselves The New Right at that point. It was kind of a coalition of old right people that had gotten together and called themselves The New Right because it was a reaction to what was happening with the neoconservatives and the Straussians and how they were taking everything over. Now, I would disagree that they were ever the new right. They were really just the old right and saying some things that now were antithetical to what was considered to be conservative, conservatism or what Gottfried calls conservative ink. Now, um, you could say that there were certainly populist underpinnings of this, and you have to go back to people like George Wallace, as I've mentioned before, to really find where some of this begins, this Make America Great Again. If you want to go back and look at someone who could work a crowd, go watch George Wallace and what he did at various campaign stops. There's speeches out there where he does it, and you get these hecklers, and he just takes them apart. It's absolutely hilarious what he does. And I'm not even sure if some of these things weren't plants just so he could do it. But it's absolutely hilarious. And he was, he was Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump before either one of those we're doing it now. We just we have historical amnesia, and anything associated with Wallace has to be put into the trash can because of Wallace's positions on segregation, which of course were uh, you know rightly buried. But the the Wallace the politician and Wallace the populist, Wallace the person that was willing to look at issues of workers, blue collar workers. Uh, frugal government, all these things. This is really the core of Jeffersonianism in America, and Wallace was very good at it. And when you look at Make America Great Again, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's old right, old American right. There is an American part of this. And when we wrote Forgotten Conservatives in American History, when Clyde Wilson and I did, I pointed that out in the dust jacket. There is certainly a distinctive Americanness in this and what we were doing with that. There are some European origins here, but Americans took it and made it their own. So Gottfried continues, like Professor Jaffa, Anton puts his debating opponents like me in what seems to be an untenable either-or situation. Either we must accept natural right as a universal moral standard, or else be relegated to the dark pit of moral relativism and, heaven forbid, historicism. According to Michael, the reason why natural right is less corrosive than nihilism should be obvious. 
If the truth is that there are no truths, no rules, principles, hierarchies, etc., then men are free from all obligation and may rightly, if rightly even exists in such a, as a concept in such a world, behave however they want. He says, I have no understanding why my choice is either to accept Anton's idea of natural right or embrace nihilism as the only possible alternative. Anton also seems to assume that natural right, which is a concept that gained currency in the 17th century, is the same as natural law, a concept that originated with the medieval schoolmen and more dis distantly with the Stoics and Aristotle. Now, again, when you look at the Magna Carta, it's influenced by the Catholic Church. And it's, I mean, it's saturated with religion. Uh, the conception of liberties and rights that developed in England, which, of course, the United States is blessed to have that lineage as part of its political character and cultural character, were developed out of the church in a conception of rights and laws and liberties from the church. I think if you were to ask the barons at Runnymede, where liberty comes from, they would say it comes from the Bible. The liberties come from this understanding of Christianity. And so the concept of English liberties is born out of a 13th century understanding of theology, without question. And then, of course, they would develop those again over several hundred years to get the English Bill of Rights, uh, and again, rights are used there. And so when Gottfried says, you know, 17th century, but even there with Locke and Hobbes, when you look at someone like Bledsoe, and he criticizes both Locke and Hobbes as being kind of two sides of the same coin. They haven't separated rights and liberties. There are two different things going on here. And perhaps you would say maybe in the 13th century, the barons would have said the same thing. I don't know. You can't ask them. And uh, there's no real evidence of this, but they might have said the same thing. But certainly, law and right are two different things, as Gottfried points out. He says, Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan refers to individual freedoms that supposedly exist in a state of natural nature as jus naturalis, semantic association that John Locke and various continental thinkers incorporated into their systems of thought. But it's doubtful these references to natural law as inborn subjective rights mostly restate older moral notions going back to antiquity. As Leo Strauss, Michael Vallee, and other respected legal political thinkers have pointed out, the early modern European idea of natural right, which builds on the scientific revolution and then progress, is different from the medieval idea of natural law. One deals with measurable material rights that in Hobbes' language is ascribed to individuals, who are imagined having come out of a state of nature. The other concept is about moral and social obligations that those who are properly instructed should be able to derive from natural reason. So here, Gottfried is making a distinction between natural rights and natural law. And where, again, Bledsoe would make the case here, he would say, yes, okay, so you have natural law, and he would say that there are restrictions, what, what law, what human law does... There's God's law and human's law, human law. But what human law is supposed to do is restrict natural tyranny, not natural right or natural liberty. It's to restrict natural tyranny. So when you look at the barons at Runnymede and they put restrictions on the power of the king, this was to restrict 
man's inclination to tyranny, to maintain the law, the natural law of Christianity. That was the important part of it. And so this develops then over time into this concept of rights, liberties, law, and how all these things work out. Whereas in the medieval understanding of dominion over nature, it is the human community that receives control of the rest of creation in the natural right understanding. It is a collective of individuals who are thus empowered. I fully concede that many of America's founders believed in, among other things, natural rights, and that the state constitutions framed during and after the Revolution clearly show the influence of natural right thinking. I also believe that intellectual leaders of the old right were misguided in trying to deny this influence entirely, and it sometimes amuses me to read their efforts to demonstrate that natural right is of no importance in the Declaration. Now again, this, this phrase was, was surprising to me in some ways, but um, look, yes, they talk about natural rights. You go back to uh, you know, the Declaration of Rights in North Carolina or Virginia or Maryland or Massachusetts or any of these, and they have them there. New England, Virginia, the South, they have them. Mid-Atlantic states, they have them. But the Declaration, uh, and this is where people like uh, Elmers and others would say there's a transition between when they were talking about the ancient constitutions to then the natural right of independence. But that natural right of independence was not a right, it was a liberty. That was a conception that came out of Virginia. I pointed this out yesterday. It wasn't a Massachusetts conception, even though Massachusetts was, was pushing this. right? They had... They, they were bristling under the way the crown was treating them. Only because, only because in their mind, uh, they weren't represented. And of course, you have the same concept going on in Virginia. But there was something deeper in Virginia, I think, than it was in, in Massachusetts. There was a practical part of Massachusetts because that was the focus of the crown. Virginia, it was something uh, that had to do with, again, Patrick Henry talked about this, that had to do with this conception of liberties and liberty and tyranny. It was uh, an adherence to the ancient constitutions that drove them entirely. And so when Jefferson waxes philosophical in the Declaration, the most important part of that was not the second paragraph, but the last paragraph. Jefferson essentially stole that language from the first paragraph from George Mason. And you would see a lot of the Virginians um, recoil at what would happen as, they, as this stuff was carried forward in places like Central America. And they would say, I think we made a mistake here uh, in, how, in, in France. We made a mistake. It's gone too far. They opened the can of worms, though. They opened Pandora's box, and you can't close it. So to say it was of no importance, I think, would be a mistake. But to say that it was the only important thing would be a major mistake. And this is where Gottfried criticizes Anton. He says, but Anton and other West Coast Straussians go equally far on the opposite direction by making it appear that the appeal to Lockean natural rights in the Declaration provides the moral foundation and reason, de, uh, and reason for America's existence. The at-large reason for America's existence. It was only about natural rights. And if you do that, then you're relying on radical Republican vision, radical Republican vision of America and what the radical Republicans push. This is 
uh, Charles Sumner. Uh, this is the 1860s Republican Party. If you do that, you've accepted the left. And this is what people like Anton can't get. He says, they also insist on a selective trip down memory lane, which is intended to demonstrate the preliminary appearance of Professor Jaffa's preferred moral truth in Plato and Aristotle. Admittedly, natural right thinking was one among other tools that American leaders availed themselves of in making moral and legal arguments for independence and against slavery. But it's hardly the only one. Debates over burning issues in the 18th and 19th centuries were pursued through appeals of the Bible in what was once an overwhelmingly pious Protestant country. America's founders were also deeply interested in the political examples of classical antiquity, and what they drew from this reverence point, reference point didn't have much to do with Lockean natural right. This is Carl Richard, if you've ever read uh, The Founders and the Classics, and they talk a lot about classical, uh, classical republics, Rome, Greece. Um, this is true. Um, and those concrete examples, the political examples, not just the philosophical examples, but the political examples, the real examples, the tangible things, these are things they drew from. And, you know, and so if you ever want to get a good book on that, again, it's Carl Richard, The Founders and the Classics. He has another one. Um, I think it's uh, Greek and Romans Bearing Gifts, I think is the title of that. Uh, but Carl Richard, go out and look for those. Uh, but yes, I think the religious part of this, and this is where I would say that Anton and the Jaffaites steer too far in the direction of secular, non-Christian tomes for their uh, understanding of America miss as I mentioned, this biblical part of it. You know, Patrick Henry was a devout Baptist. Uh, you couldn't separate the two from the man. He, he understood the world through the lens of his faith. And there were many other Americans that did the exact same thing. And this is, when people say, you know, is America a Christian nation? I would say no, because it's never been a nation. But Americans were Christian people predominantly. And I've, I've wrote on this, uh, written on this many, many times. Um, about America being a Christian people, not a Christian nation, but America was dominated by Christianity in, in the 18th century. Uh, even the people that were deists would still be largely influenced by Christianity. He says, I'm also unclear why defending laws as the long-standing traditions of a people furnishes a less cogent defense than dragging out early modern European natural right. I certainly don't begrudge Anton the pleasure of invoking that tradition, but I'm not at all convinced that those who control, I'm sorry, choose to appeal to other moral principles are engaging in relativistic outrages. So, again, he's saying here, well, why is it that defending English traditions is not as good as defending natural right? And Anton would say, well, those traditions are bad. I mean, we can have traditions move. Traditions can be changed. Traditions, I mean, do I fit in those traditions? This is Anton's critique of this. How do, how do I fit? I'm not English. Of an, I'm not of English ancestry. I'm not an Anglo-American. How do people who aren't Anglo-Americans fit into that? And I think the answer to that is very simple. And it's something Blackstone talked about. Once you set foot on English shores and you became a citizen, you were subjected to the same traditions and customs as anyone who was born there. Once you became a citizen. So citizenship is the key. Not just because you... I mean, now Blackstone would go a little further than I think a lot of people would in, in extending citizenship out pretty willy-nilly. But the citizenship part is key. You have to accept 
the traditions and customs of that Anglo-American tradition once you become a citizen and not try to change it based on wherever you were from because those things are alien to the Anglo-American tradition. That tradition should be accepted. It's why we have the structure and framework and all the things that we enjoy in America. No, no matter where you're from. Look, you could be from Ireland. You could be from, uh, from uh, Germany. You could be from France. You could be from South America, Africa, Asia, wherever. As long as you accept the traditions and become part of that as a citizen and what those traditions mean, anchored to a certain conception of liberties and an understanding of those liberties. Now, again, we're going to get into this dispute of which liberties matter, but that's something else that's going on. But, I mean, this Anglo-American tradition is important. So going to natural rights and breaking free from this tradition is, in many ways, suicide because it opens the door to the left. Anton just can't see it. Nor do I understand how Socratic defenses of truth and justice contain the seeds of 18th century natural right thinking, which, as far as I can tell, issues from Hobbes, Locke, and more distantly to Scottish Covenanters and Spanish Jesuits of the 16th century. Anton might choose to accuse me of historicizing what for him is a sacred tradition going back many thousands of years. For me, however, that what he invokes is among, one among other defenses of individual freedom from government control or overreach that developed in the early modern West. For me, moreover, this concept remains problematic because it does provide a conceptual bridge to the human rights industry that Anton and I both reject as a leftist trick. And again, Gottfried is correct about this. Once you get into this idea and the way that Anton tries to sell natural rights and enlightenment thought, it opens the door to the modern left. Because who ran with that? Well, I mean, the reformists of the 19th century, whom Anton and others, by channeling Lincoln, are actually praising. So once you do that, you've, you've broken the tradition. It, it can't work anymore. The focus on individual rights and the inherent right to judge individual interests both lead to an expanding laundry list of sacralized uh, uh, rights that our ideological theocrats now, can now declare as universally valid. Last week, I heard Tucker Carlson explain that gay marriage is a human right resting on natural affection. This from someone who in other ways has been rightly hailed as a daring critic of the establishment left. So see, you just move the goalpost. There's no, there's no anchor to these things anymore. This is what Dabney pointed out. It's discarded. What the left discards, the right picks up. American right and says this is now a conservative principle. Dabney. This, this, this older Southern tradition is important. Since all human beings are, according to natural rights doctrine, free and equal, and since rights are subjective rather than vested in a traditional hierarchy, a base society such as we meet in Aristotle's household or in the ancient or medieval commonwealth, why must the listing of natural rights stop with life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness? Why shouldn't that list also include gay marriage and gender reassignment? Yes, I can anticipate Anton's response that natural right, properly understood, also includes biblical and classical moral codes. That is, if one reads Jus Naturel in the matter in which West Coast Straussians want me to read it. But I'm not persuaded that their gloss is the proper one, or that the religious and political tradition of the West, in its best and most authentic form, is summed up in natural right teachings. 
So Gottfried continues, and he's going to wrap up here. He said, That said, I do not reject the liberal constitutional order to which natural right theorists contributed. What I do reject is the attempt to make the Amer entire American right fit a West Coast Stroudsian grid. And I think this is where Anton is trying to do that. He's trying to make it to where he is defining what American conservatism is. And it's an incorrect definition of American conservatism because they just, they're blind. They really don't see. And, I, and I've said this before on this podcast. I think Harry Jaffa was attempting to take the sting out of American conservatism because the charge is always that you know, American conservatism is, is race-based or uh, there's always this, this baggage, you know, baggage of slavery, baggage of segregation. Um, but, and so he said, well, look, equality is a conservative position. So if equality is conservative, you can't accuse us of being these horrible things anymore. But when they did that, they essentially destroyed uh, the, the anchor that American conservatives had. Not that not American conservatism is based on race or slavery. It's actually not at all. But when you say equality is conservative, then what is really conservative? You're not, equality can't be conservative. It, it, it's the antithesis of conservatism in the understanding of a traditional Anglo-American society. And if you, again, in the Virginia context, but even in the Massachusetts context, there was certain liberties, there, there was a hierarchy there. There were certain liberties for some and not for others. Americans understood hierarchy. What they didn't want was an artificial aristocracy. They wanted something that was more natural. And of course, in Virginia, they would look at their standing and their positions as being part of a natural order. They would see that. And, of course, they never blocked people from moving up and down this order. It wasn't because you were born into it. But there was certainly an appeal to a landed interest in having uh, a firm control of society as being a benefit for society at large rather than just being you know, completely thrown to the masses. Uh, now, Jefferson, even Jefferson, we talked about democracy quite a bit, and he would be much more to the left as some of the other Virginia planters, but even Jefferson recognized kind of this natural aristocracy as well. So Godfrey says, there should be room for those who, like me, appeal to historically based traditions and justifying institutions. It is also entirely possible to accept the reality of universal moral norms without embracing natural right theory. I recommend, for example, the works of the Sorbonne jurist uh, Michel Vallée, who wrote uh, many works on this distinction. It might also be instructive with that Anton and I usually land up in the same place in ascending, uh, I'm sorry, in assessing the modern condition, even if our philosophical starting points differ. Apparently, I and others who think like me have not fallen off the earth because we treat natural right more skeptically than Michael Anton. So he's saying, look, we always end up in the same place. Um, true to a point, <laughs> but when you but when you make this Lincolnian vision of America, the center of American conservatism, you are, you are essentially conceding the field to the left. You can't do it because they will take it in their direction. You can't do it. You're conceding the field. And so you have to, you have to tear that part out of American conservatives and make it work. He says, in any case, I trust I've, that I've exonerated myself of the charge with which Anton begins his essay. That assumes I'm the kind of rightist he had in mind when he wrote, quote, 
This new right is especially hostile to the idea of natural right. It is hostile to it, however, without quite knowing what it is. I am certainly not befuddled by the notion of right, nor would I deny that such an entity exists and must be taken seriously. Our difference lies in the degree of significance that we assign to a certain concept of right, namely natural right. So, uh, this debate over rights, liberties, natural law, all these things, it's hundreds of years old. I mean, they were wrestling with this in the 19th century. As the American left gained ascendancy, the American left, which is now called the American right, we have to understand that historical part of this. When you break yourself from that, when you, when you simply get into the world of ideology, which is where Anton dwells, you are now crossing into dangerous territory because you forget about the historical examples. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.